Before we kick off today's show, I wanted to let you know that we have agreed a couple of major partnerships in the last few weeks, and that means we're going to be hiring for our next season. We are looking for a producer to come in and work on the show, and that does require some experience of the audio and media industry. Secondly, we are looking for a researcher stroke head of guest bookings. This role primarily requires someone to be extremely organised, all the things that I'm not. And of course, a passion for the UK economy and entrepreneurship is essential. To find out more about the roles, check out our pinned tweet on our Twitter page, at Jimmy N. Today's guest is someone I have wanted to interview for a very long time. She probably sums up what this show is all about. Tanya Bowler founded the female technology company, or Femtech for short, Elvi, around a decade ago. To give you some context to the importance of Elvi and the growth of the Femtech sector as a whole, in 2012, the entire sector raised 62 million US dollars. Whereas last year, LV raised a 70 million pound Series C round. But it's still a sector that is very much in its nascency. And that is what I like to think we're all about at Jimmy's Jobs, is shining a light on the sectors and industries of the future to inspire people about the future of our economy and the jobs being created in them. We discussed with Tanya today what has happened in the last 10 years to inspire such investor confidence in the sector, how a company best known for their breast pumps has pioneered PR in the 21st century, and the wider jobs in Femtech. We talk about Tanya's story coming from a non-governmental organisation background to becoming an entrepreneurial founder, which is a pretty rare course. We also talk about how you gain cult status as a brand and the skills of the future that make you stand out. This show is made possible by the fantastic support of our various partners and I wanted to thank The Octopus Group. The Octopus Group is a collection of eight entrepreneurially minded businesses across financial services and energy, all founded on the one simple belief that people and the planet deserve better. They are intent on building a better tomorrow for future generations and are a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. I am proud that Octopus have backed this show since the second series and they are the reason why we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson or the CEO of their investments arm, Ruth Hancock. If you want to see how you could partner with us, go to our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co. And now on to today's episode. Tanya, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Hi, Jimmy. Thank you. Great to be here. What's in a name? Where did the name LV come from? We chose LV because it sounds like it could be a name of a friend. And our first product, which is the LV Pelvic Floor Trainer, was all the idea of your most personal trainer. Uh, but actually, we didn't just come up with the name. It was actually quite a big uh, process where we talked to lots of women to try and understand what was the core proposition behind the brand. And the pelvic floor is a muscle which is all around just negative connotations. In the US, it's called Kegel, after the guy Kegel, who came up with the name for the muscle. Uh, in the UK, it's the idea of this drooping muscle. So the actual name of the muscle is levator. So it's all about elevate. Um, so actually the name LV came from the word elevate and the whole proposition around lifting 
lifting your body, lifting women and so on. How interesting. So how many conversations did you have with customers to come up with that? Oh, well, early days. I mean, I didn't know anything about brand, right? So I brought this brand consultant and we had a lot of fun, like coming up, testing different propositions. You know, was it around core strength? Was it about sexual health? Was it about fitness? Was it around elevating? Uh, because the, the, the funny thing about this part of women's health is it's linked to so many things, right? I, I didn't even know this until I started, but pelvic floor health is linked to better sex, uh, less back pain, better core strength, better six pack. Um, there's just so many different things it's linked to and at different stages of life. It's linked to menopause, having babies and so on. So it's sort of how do we pick what is that core brand proposition and what's going to resonate? But I think the key thing we knew with the brand is it had to be positive. You know, this is a part of the body that's shrouded in stigma. Women don't like to think about it. And how could we not just come up with a product that's going to help women, but actually change the whole language? One of the reflections that I wanted to get from you was that you've just raised a Series C 80 million US dollar round. You started the company 10 years ago, almost. And during that year of 2012, only 60 million was raised by the entire femtech sector. What has changed during that period to allow you to do such a big fundraise? I mean, it's monumental change. When I started, the word femtech didn't even exist. There certainly was not a, a vertical within tech for women's health technology. Uh, it was very much that I, I'd have a background in women's health. I'd not been working in tech. I saw a problem that needed to be solved, which is this hidden epidemic for women, pelvic floor health. And I came up with a technological solution. As I was just explaining about the brand, the key thing I realized is we can't just give women technology. We need to educate them. We need to shift attitudes into a more positive space around womanhood. Now, what was interesting is at the same time, two other female entrepreneurs in different countries dealing with different women's health issues were coming with, up with the same realization. So we had Edithin in Germany who, was, who launched Clue, which is the first peer tracking app. And again, this idea of not just women deserve better technology, but we need to shift the language around womanhood and women's health into more positive space. And then there's Catherine Ryder in New York who launched Maven, which is a digital women's health clinic. So all three of us were launching innovative products for women's health, different life stages. We're saying the same thing, which is being a woman and women's health should be a normal part of the conversation. And we need better technology for all women at all life stages. And it was actually Edith who came up with the name Femtech. And that was only sort of seven years ago. But it's incredible how, you know, there's a, there is some controversy. Should we have the name Femtech? I think Catherine Ryder would say no, because why should we have technology just focused on women? And it makes it a bit of a niche issue. Um, but overall, having a label, being able to quantify it, the fact that now tech saying that the, the Femtech industry vertical is going to be $50 billion makes a huge difference to why we're now able to raise money and there's the, the most exciting thing is there's so many other female founders now also starting in this space. Yeah, um, we'll definitely come on to that and you being sort of blazing a trail for people. But I wanted to touch a bit on your background first, because it's a bit of an unusual background for an entrepreneur. It's not the sort of classic consultancy um, spotting a problem in the market. You actually work for a lot of different NGOs at the beginning of your career. And I just wondered... How did that give you an edge in, in becoming an entrepreneur? No, I'm not sure if it gave me an edge, but it definitely gave me, you know, it, it gave me a passion, put it that way, right? So I think 
a lot of founders, you know, as we all know, and everybody who's talks on this podcast talks about it, is there's so many tough times, right? So how you have the grit to keep going. And I think often it needs to be something that you care about very passionately. Um, and for me, yeah, basically my childhood was always sort of shrouded in quite a few taboo health issues. Uh, my mom died when I was a teenager and that really affected the path I went on. My dad always says I probably would have become a management consultant or banker otherwise. Uh, so instead I wanted to go and work in international development and work in taboo health issues. So yeah, I have a PhD in HIV prevention. My dream job was to work in the UN, definitely not an entrepreneurial place. Uh, so I kind of followed my dream uh, career in international development working in women's health, but became super frustrated. I mean, I am a very fast paced uh, type of person and you know, quite quickly realized that actually technology had the potential to improve health at a much larger scale. But in terms of what edge did it give me, I did, you know, I did wonder that because I'd never worked even in the private sector, I'd never worked in tech. Uh, so I was wondering if I had any transferable skills. And I do think one of the key things for a successful entrepreneur is around building a team. And I had built quite big teams and, 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 and knowing when you're not the engineer or you are lacking in skills, it offers you a humility, I think, to to make sure that you bring in the best people. You don't sort of have any ego about that. What was working at the UN like? Because as you said, you did describe it as a dream job. Kafka-esque. It was, I only lasted 18 months. It was so bad. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but I did manage, I helped launch the global curriculum on sex education. So I'm proud to have brought about some change. I mean, the change, well, you've worked at policy, Jimmy, right? So I worked policy research, right? So the point is, it's slow. I worked in evidence-based policy. You're familiar with this. But if you get changed through, it can have a bigger impact, right? But to be honest, since I started LV, I, I know that the impact I've had on women's lives is, is far greater than what I did at 10 years in, in SASH development. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a challenge I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs about engaging with government and so on. And or unless it's a highly regulated area, a lot of the time, my advice is it's going to suck up too much of your time as an entrepreneur. You know, you need to be focusing on building the product, et cetera, and it will just, government will tie you in, in knots for, for a long time. And it's very difficult to achieve change as well. So you've got to be laser focused. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a real challenge. I completely agree with you. I think specifically in health, right? Because, you know, even our pelvic floor trainer, we got it on the NHS preferred supply list. And I, and I'm, I'm in exactly the same boat as you, like having worked with government, having worked in clinical trials, it slows down innovation. Um, but you've got to see what, what's happening with health systems. And in the UK, we do not have money for preventative health care. So mm. that's why health tech is stepping in. Um, but, you know, so even though we've got on the NHS supply chain, I know that in order to get any scale, it's impossible because it's so difficult to get the resourcing behind it. So I completely agree. I think you have to, you know, work with government when the time's right. So us it was go as fast as you can get to as many women as possible and that was quite different right because we are a class two medical device so often the normal route would be to market with doctors you know even the u.s to go mm. health insurance but we went direct to consumer we built a really strong consumer brand and then the idea is that later on when we have when we've proved ourselves in a difficult space that's when you can work with government and that's when you can go for the research partnerships and at the beginning, you actually got a pitch um, and you got a grant from Innovate UK, which I thought was quite interesting because, again, that hasn't le necessarily led to many successful entrepreneurs. I'd love your kind of reflections on that a few years on. Actually, that's probably an edge I got from the NGO world. I knew how to write grant applications. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
yeah, look, so at the very beginning, I, I was working as I was director of evidence strategy innovation at Mary Stopes International, which is a big women's health uh, charity. I had the idea for LV, that was the pelvic floor trainer. I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, so I reached out to my network and it was actually Tom Adeula uh, at Mitel who told me about Innovate UK. And he just said, you know, this is somewhere where you can, can raise uh, innovation money. And I was so naive. I, I sort of took two days off work and thought I'll fill in this application form. And I didn't even understand the questions. I was like having to Google exploitation plan and so on. But somehow through my network, like I had somebody I knew who worked in private equity. He helped me write the commercial section. Like that is literally how naive I was. Um, and then sent in this application. And it, it was, you know, the day I found out I won £100,000 was just genuinely one of the happiest days of my life because this idea in my head, which had been percolating for so long, had, had suddenly been validated by a, a group of experts. Plus, it gave me the money and the confidence, really, to quit my job and, and start LV. Do you think it was more the confidence than the money? Yeah, it was the confidence that it was validated because I actually already had an angel investor, Seth Johnson, who was my first angel. He was already ready to put money in. Actually, the Innovate just allowed me to bump up the valuation. <laughs> <laughs> Always, always important at those early stages, right? Um, how important do you think is the media in the sort of overall context of you know female technology or female products? Because there's been a long tale of where females haven't been taken seriously. Moira King being one of the sort of classic examples of that. I just wondered how much you'd seen change in the media over the last ten years when it comes to women's issues. Yeah, I think, look, in your marketing arsenal, media has to be one of your strategies. You have to go, you know, when you're launching an innovation or an innovative product and there's not the language around it, it's not always clear cut what the best marketing strategy is. Um, mm -hmm. And as I said, the, the, typically in health tech, you would go over more of a medical route. I think increasingly over the last five years, we're seeing this new trend towards consumer or personal health, which is the idea you have products like LV, which are, held to very clinical stand, high clinical standards. Uh, they're regulated as medical devices, but then they are branded and marketed as a consumer product. And within that space, obviously, media is very important. Uh, but I, what I would say is most health, health tech companies fail to capture the imagination of media. You know, ultimately, media is earned, um, uh, you know, it's earned press. You, you're not necessarily paying for it. Um, and what we've managed to do really well um, under the leadership of Ethan Ali, our chief commercial officer, is is find a way to, again, capture the imagination of, of journalists. Um, and the way we're doing this is by running quite provocative campaigns. Uh, and that comes from two faces. Part of it's commercial, but also part of it is part of our mission, right? We are a mission-led company. We're about empowering women through radical female-first technology. All my work in the UN and NGOs was about educating women and ask me anything in public health, you need education and you need the actual tools, the technology. So we kind of naturally always just within our DNA wanted to, to break taboos and, and also to, to get people talking about issues. Uh, but the media has really grabbed onto this. It's part of the zeitgeist at the moment. And I think uh, that's partly that we're leading the way in that, but also it's part of a wider feminist movement that we're seeing going on, this sort of untabooing of, of womanhood. And actually starting with, with more Gen Z, like younger women, you know, sharing on social, look, I'm on my period, there's nothing to be embarrassed about, and we're sort of part of that. So within the media space, yes, it's, it's uh, that 
they've been very receptive to the brand, but also I think it's not just traditional media. I think the key change obviously is social. So on social, it allows a platform for women to just normal women say, look at me, I'm on my period and I'm still a woman. Or what's been incredible for us, we have over half a million women uh, following LV and, and on Insta. You know, what we've been able to do is ultimately you want any negative taboo health issue to be transformed into something positive and shareable. And if you can get that right, that's when things go viral. And, and what we've done, and that's not even us pushing it, is women use our breast pump, right? So before LV pump, women were tied you know, to a horrible product that stuck to the wall, noisy, painful. And now there's this amazing sense of, of freedom. So women, if you look at our Insta scroll, it's literally like, hey, look at me. I'm performing surgery whilst pumping. I'm running a marathon whilst pumping. I'm just doing all these incredible things. Look at what a superwoman I am. So it's, it's, it's about that peer-to-peer on social, that, that impact that you can have. And then the second key thing that's worked really well for us actually is around um, often just gifting, so gifting to, to influencers, and then if they organically post. And then what you tend to see now is old uh, traditional media will then pick up on it. So it'll then end up on, you know, Metro, Mail Online, um, Hello Magazine, that kind of stuff. That's really, uh, really interesting on, on so many levels. What's the most... I mean, it must be great fun to kind of sit down and think about those kind of campaigns and be innovative and, and brainstorm. Um, what's the one you're most proud of running so far? Uh, well, our biggest one was called Free the Seed. So there's a lot of stigma around breastfeeding. A lot of women, if you ask them, they wish they'd breastfed for longer. And the key reason they say is they're embarrassed around breastfeeding. Uh, and this is a stigmatized area. So what we did is we actually, uh, we created these four huge inflatable breasts, different colors, different shapes. And we tried to put them on the skyline in London. In fact, we tried to go for Canary Wharf, but they, they wouldn't let us. But uh, we ended up putting them on different buildings in Shoreditch. And it was just this incredible campaign. Because obviously uh, it's a real, you know, showstopper. Uh, but then also it just went viral on social it's when we've done things like that. And actually, second one, I know you just asked for one, but very recently, uh, an issue with pelvic floor that women never talk about is when they're doing exercise, they might pee. And we actually had a bodybuilder, quite a famous bodybuilder, and she was doing a dead squat with some weights. And there was a billboard that we put up. And actually, we had liquid coming out of the billboard. It wasn't real pee. <laughs> uh, but, you know, just doing something quite bold, something which people are going to really stop and take note and share. Uh, and it's not, as I said, it's you know it's done also because it just provokes conversation. Like we need to be talking about these things. And how much of that do you see as being not necessarily an edge or so on, but being a community kind of champion? Right. It's it's partly you're you're building a community and and almost building an audience before a, before they reach a product. Yeah, absolutely. I think. You know, our, our products, we have amazing engineers developing products that, that provide solutions that didn't exist, but it's the brand, you're right, it's the community, it's the um, the sense of, of being behind something exciting. And it, it is, it's not something actually that we commercialize very well, but it's, it's definitely a big part of LV. Yeah, but it is interesting how many brands, you know, it's it taking charge of those marketing channels yourself right like it you know it used to be so much about pr and what exposure you can you can get and now like anyone with the with a smartphone has the ability to kind of run one of these campaigns it's pretty um pretty extraordinary are there any ideas that we haven't seen yet that are on the cutting room floor which may reappear <laughs> oh yeah and just i just also thought i want you to say 
Absolutely. And that's what's so exciting when you have that peer to peer validation on, on products and brands. So for example, TikTok, we have a lot of just micro users who just, they just go off and just create their own content, right? And you just see what, 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 what sticks. Um, ideas that haven't, that haven't made it out. The, well, to be honest, we've been so bold. There's nothing that we've said, oh, that's a bit too much. Not yet. Well, I look forward to seeing it. Where, what's the So you're on TikTok as well then? Is that, that proving a useful growth channel? Yeah, literally all channels that like you just need to, um, I mean, I think it, for us, Instagram is, is the most, is the best, but anything with video or imagery, because because our products are intimate, right? So it, it allows people to see what they are and understand. Like I've explained to you pelvic floor trainer, would you be able to, I, I don't know if you, you know, it's difficult for people to know what it does and how it works. You know, even in pitch pitch meetings, I would sort of explain and then realize, particularly some of the men in the room wouldn't still didn't really understand that it went in the vagina or that connects to an app or, or or what it did and how it works. So, yeah, anything like TikTok where you've got video or Insta where you've got pictures really allows us to do, you know, to explain the product much more than typical long-form content or something. I mean, that must have been a problem at the beginning in terms of, like, actually just trying to, like, how how do you strip back to its most basic fundamentals of what the what the product is it must have been a challenge i mean there's so many stats out there right about vc funding to female founders and so on not raise raising less than two percent of capital um and while so much of it has changed in the 10 years in terms of raising capital what we were talking about in terms of femtech and so on it must have been really difficult in those early days for people to even understand what you were asking for yeah, they all thought I was completely crazy. Um, I mean, we're female-focused products, right? So I think the first hurdle is for investors to say, is there really a market for this? And especially when the female consumer of tech has been somewhat neglected, even though, for example, she's responsible for 85% of healthcare decision-making in the household. So but ultimately, investors are there to make money, right? So it was sort of about taking out anything yucky or anything embarrassing and just going straight with the numbers, and actually, it becomes a bit of a no-brainer when you look at how much the female consumer of tech has been ignored. It's still crazy that there's never been a global tech brand for women. Um, so it's about just trying to find the right hook. But it's very binary, right? There were a lot of investors who wouldn't take a call, who wouldn't have a meeting. But at least those who did want a meeting, are kind of they they understood. And you know, you know what it's like. You only need one. It's one of those things. Early days, like when Octopus invested, it was very hard. And and Simon King at Octopus took a real gamble on us and he's you know i'm just very grateful to octopus i think they're doing a lot to support uh you know diverse founders and so on but now we're at the point where yeah obviously we've proved ourselves we're 100 million dollar revenue and and now everybody's uh excited and interested to be involved it, it makes me laugh right it's kind of amusing that the people wouldn't take the calls and now kind of emailing me but you know obviously i get a bit of a kick out that <laughs> yeah i bet i bet you do no but octopus see it as like a differential advantage right like in the sense of you know there's no you know if only two percent of funding is going to these women and underrepresented founders then there's lots of talent there to be tapped into right so it's, it's also kind of a commercial decision for, for octopus as well yeah absolutely and i think you know the key thing is that there's often you know there's an assumption for example that if you have more female investors that there'll be more female founders but actually there was a study by harvard business review showing that both male and female investors tend to show unconscious bias, which is gendered. So, for example, they tend to ask men at a pitch questions which allow the men to talk more around potential gains and commercial upside, and and, and they ask women questions which are more leading around downside protections. 
Um, so that what I mean is that, yes, the other sides in terms of the investors are doing well to bring in more female investors, but actually what Oxpus does, which is very interesting, is because they're unaware aware of this unconscious bias. And it's not just gendered, right? Somebody walks into a pitch, we all label everybody, right? Is it the way they talk? Is it how tall they are? Is it how they shake my hand? For me, it's like, I just had a baby four weeks ago. They're going to think I'm knackered. So it's like, sure, I wasn't knackered, whatever it is. And because Octopus is actually aware of that, what they now do is any founder who is a female or comes from a minority group, ethnic or, or sexuality or anything, they won't actually screen. They'll go straight to a face-to-face meeting uh, so that they can somehow remove some of those hurdles. Because you're right, otherwise yeah. they're just closing the door on potential opportunities. Yeah, no, no, exactly. Uh, well, yeah, as Octopus say, they uh, back the ideas, people, and industries that are going to change the world, and they also support this podcast as well. So, <laughs> oh, I didn't, I did not know that. But don't forget, most theses now say they're trying to change the world, right? And a lot of them are not. Yeah. Sorry. exactly yeah yeah who, who isn't trying to uh who isn't trying to change the world i just wanted on, on that though like the how do you find the pressure of it or is it even pressure of kind of being a cult favorite right like in all the research we were doing like you get held up as the kind of you know femtech trailblazer alongside those other two founders you mentioned earlier there's how do you find like yeah, the profile around that whilst also trying to run a business as well because that's some something that must be a real challenge i don't know if i'm a cult i think elvie's you mean elvie the brand's a cult favorite yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Of me. But the, as the founder of a cult favorite brand right yeah i mean look, having the brand to be cult favorite is like absolutely what we aspire to have and, and i want to continue to have because if you're if you're building a consumer brand or lifestyle brand you want to can't always be the zeitgeist and the hardest thing is it's so easy to copy brand. Like everybody else in the femtech space keeps copying us. They copy our colors. They copy the imagery. So yeah, we want to continue being a cult favorite because also to the point we're talking about earlier, if you get your brand out to the influencers and they love your product, then that trickles down. Um, for me, as an individual, as a founder, um, I do. I feel a responsibility because I know there's not that many women in the UK who've scaled tech companies to to. Um, the level we have but you know i i'm excited and prov- i sounds cheesy but it's it's great being in that position because i can i can genuinely start helping um other women and, and hopefully you know that idea of you can't be what you can't see you know it's not just me there's other great female founders in the uk who are also doing things at scale and the more of us there are will create more of a critical mass and and it will be positive impacts what do you think is you know, the one or two things that could kind of improve the pipeline of, of female founders? I think it's like what we were talking about before on the investor side, that we need to overcome some of the unconscious bias. Uh, and I would also say, like, there's a lot of focus on personal skills with female founders. Like, there's a lot of focus on workshops, how to build life skills, how to build confidence, how to do extra better pitching. And I think all of that is, is definitely very important too. But I suppose I always look at things at quite a macro level. And I think one of the problems that we have in the UK is the supply in terms of education in STEM for women. So just to provide some context, you know, when we look at the stats on VC funding, it there is a gender problem. But if we look at where the money goes, the areas which are more investable and are higher value are things such as um, basically deep tech, AI, fintech, uh, transport and so on and those areas are far less there are far less women going to those areas partly because they tend to be more 
hard science areas. So, for example, if you look at founders by vertical, if you look at education, health, and e-commerce, it's up to 20% female founders. If you look at areas like fintech or, uh, you know, um, self-driving cars, automobiles, it, it's, it's down to about 10%. So there's a real difference of the number of women who are going into the verticals, which are more investable by VC. And then if you trace that back, and the reason I know so much about this, because what we're looking at similarly for LB is how we get more women into engineering. And we just have a huge problem in, in this country. Only 11% of engineers are women. And then you trace that back and it's looking at, yes, we're getting more girls to do more STEM, but things like physics and maths, they're not necessarily continuing on with. Uh, so, for example, I, I, you know, everyone says, how do we fix this? But it, it's, it, there are ways to do it with enough political will and outreach, but I do think it needs to start much earlier. So, for example, at Stanford in the US, um, you know, they used to have about 8% women computer science uh, graduates in 2012. Now it's 34%. So that's more than 4x, right, in nine years. So there's, there's a lot that we can learn, I think, from the US. And I think we need to get more women into some of those more engineering disciplines and then encouraging them to also start businesses in the sectors where we're really not seeing many women. And how do you, what are the future jobs in LV, right? Like, you know, this is what the show's all about, but what are the types of roles? Because I think one of the problems with this is that people don't necessarily, when they're at school, see the correlation between maths engineering and then kind of building products you know you go and you go into a school and you say like you know who wants to work at facebook google apple right half of them will put their hands up and then you sort of say well who who's studying engineering who's planning to study engineering and you'll get five percent if that right and it's just a classic example of well that's what these companies need but actually people aren't making those links so how can we do more of that and what do you see being the future jobs at LV? Yeah, no, you've actually put your finger on it um, because I've only started, basically at LV, we want to set up something called LV Change, which is supporting getting more women into engineering. And I've also been talking to Hayat and Salem, who's the first ever female CEO of the Royal Institute of Engineering. And what their analysis and also what we, we see as well is the problem is physics at A-level. Like physics is currently a prerequisite to study engineering at university. So the question is, how do we get more girls into physics and or how do we change the prerequisite for engineering? To your point, how do we get what you're saying is exactly right. What we find is young women are not seeing that a career in engineering or physics can lead to an exciting job. And I think the same way we've rebranded women's health issues, I want to rebrand engineering. You need to be able to make it cool. And, and we need to be able to show young women that, yeah, the jobs at LV or other places can be exciting, that you can do things where it's having an impact on society is important or if you want to do something tangible, especially physics, I think, which is such a theoretical subject. But I don't have all the answers, but there are people in the UK doing some exciting stuff. And that's kind of very much what I personally want to also help help look at next. And what are the big kind of expanding areas kind of in female technology more broadly, right? Like there's engineers, but what else? What's a role that you have hired for that you might not have expected to when you started out on this journey? From a job's. Yeah, and so and just also going back to the last bit, the only other thing I wanted to say is the other problem we have in the UK, which is specific to LV, is we're a hardware business, right? UK is mm. not strong on hardware. Apologies. There are some absolute outliers, like Dyson's incredible, and it might not be a coincidence that we've opened up our offices in Bristol right next to Dyson, and 20% of our staff are ex-Dyson. But we're not like Germany. We do not have that sort of horsepower. So again, yeah, I do think it's about the government looking at its industrial 
sector strategy. And if we're not supporting the area, also obviously looking at issues around immigration. I'm sure you, you hear that from many founders where we are facing real talent shortages and a sort of desperate need of, of, of some, some change at a policy level. Um, but yeah, in terms of the role, you were saying, oh, I didn't think we needed. Uh, yeah, you've, you've hired for that. Yeah, I, I always think this is, you know, because you go on websites and and look at roles and I just think, yeah, I'm not that long in the tooth, right? I only graduated sort of 13 years ago, but I, I don't recognize a lot of these roles now. Like, and it's quite amazing that, and yeah, it's, I guess the whole ethos of the show, right, is about, it's never been a better time to be starting or shifting careers, but actually the amount of information out there can be overwhelming to sort of know about it. So it's just great to hear from founders like you about where you think the future is sort of going and, and what roles that you've hired for that you didn't expect 10 years ago. I mean, classic is social media manager, right? Right. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, a role I personally never thought I'd hire for was strategy. I always thought, you know, our doers could also be doing the thinking. Um, and actually, since we've hired a strategy person, it has really helped. But yeah, new roles that we see. Well, for us, like I mentioned, it's the specific type of engineering roles to do with connected devices. So you have software, but also hardware and firmware. I mean, massive explosion in firmware. Like anybody listening who's thinking about retraining, go learn some firmware programming language. The starting salaries are crazy because there just aren't enough firmware engineers in this country. What is the sort of starting salary for something like that? I wouldn't want, I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, I also know, funny enough, my husband works in fintech and I know their salaries are also much higher than what we're paying at LV. But um, but yeah, the areas which really are in demand and um, are high salaries, I say firmware engineers, but also I'm sure as, you, as other people must have said, is around data scientists, right? Anybody in the data scientist area as well. Um, but yeah, on the marketing side, it is, yeah, it's still obviously around content, social media and performance marketing, digital marketing, again, seems to be an area where we just cannot get enough talent at all. And what does you mentioned there the sort of strategy role? I mean, I think everyone likes to sort of think of themselves as a bit of a strategist, don't they? But so, what what does you know somebody who does strategy cover? Yeah, I think because also once you get VC money, right, their natural go to is oh, you need to hire an ex management consultant to be your strategy person or chief of staff. And so many founders seem to do that as soon as they get their money because they're told they need to do it. Um, and I sometimes think it's because maybe the VC partner just wants somebody to talk to who speaks their language. Um, yeah. and I did have my ex McKinsey person. She was amazing. And it was helpful that she spoke exactly the same language as the investors. Um, but, you know, seriously, I think it can help at the right moment. I wouldn't, you know, you want to have the right balance of doing and thinking, talking. And anybody who's done a startup early stage has got to be, you know, 10% strategy, 90% execution. And you can, you know, Early days, I also hired a mistake I made, I'll be honest. I went to Oxford. I had too many ex-Oxbridge people. I thought it was a de-risk way to have smart people who could deal with pressure. But you actually end up with people spending too much time talking and academic conversations, right? You just need to get on with stuff. So I think there's a time and place to bring in the strategy role um, because I do think it can be a waste of time to spend uh, too much analysis paralysis. But the right time is, I suppose, once you are scaling. So like for us, after last year, we set up our strategy team. We were at Circa... I've lost track now, maybe 15 million revenue. We were going to multiple markets, multiple products. And I think that's when it's useful to have a program management point of view. Like you don't, when you grow so quickly, right? So we went from say 80 people to 160. You need a central strategy function that can do the downstream strategy to coordinate across teams to make sure we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. We're all working to the same set of metrics. Plus you need 
a sort of ring-fenced group of people. It doesn't have to be a strategy team. It could be under product. It's able to continuously be thinking and living in the mid to long term because you're so busy scaling, delivering products, meeting customer needs. You, it is very useful to have a ring-fenced group of people who can who can do the bigger picture thinking. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. Um, and just talk to us a bit about kind of Bristol, right? Because I actually think it's a really interesting area. Like one of the things that we love doing on the show is profiling companies outside of London and the and the Southeast. And there are some amazing things happening in Bristol. You know, Graphcore is an incredible UK um, story. And it would be just really interesting to hear your kind of logic. Obviously, there's the Dyson-Wiltshire connection as well that you alluded to. But yeah, why did you sort of double down on Bristol? Yeah, I mean, we still have sort of corporate, and I'm in London. Um, but we knew, right, we knew that we're innovation-led company. We knew we had to build uh, and scale an engineering team. So then the question is, where do you do it? You know, if you do it in central London, you're crazy. You're competing with Google and Facebook for, for talent. So we did, you know, we did analysis. We looked, do we go zone six outside London? Do we look at Newcastle, Manchester, Bristol? Uh, where do we have a specific talent that we need? Um, and actually for hardware, in terms of reimagining consumer experiences, Dyson is is the number one. And there's also other companies like Rolls-Royce, Jaguar, Land Rover there. Um, so we knew there was a good talent pool there. Uh, obviously, salaries are lower than London. You haven't got London waiting. But also what's important actually is retention tends to be higher in some of those cities, I think, because it's a less aggressive job market. But also when people move to Bristol, it's just such a wonderful place, right? They tend to to to, to really settle there, have families. So you have, I don't know, we've just found in general retention in, in Bristol is, is higher than, say, in London. And obviously the beauty of the fact you can get on the train in, in sort of an hour and a half. So yeah, yeah, absolutely right. It's, it's been it's been a it's been great to to have a team out there. I think the culture is quite different. It is a, you know, in London where everything's always so hectic. Everything whenever I come to Bristol it always feels a lot calmer. Um, and we've just got an amazing team. And like you said, there are more and more startups in Bristol, which isn't good for us, right? Because now means they get our teams getting poached. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the competition kind of ratchets up a little yeah. bit more again. Uh, yeah, no, that's a, it's really interesting to. Um, to hear and what does the the future look like for LB? Right, like you've talked in times um, in the past about kind of floating in the in the next couple of years. Good job it's not this year with the way the markets are. But what's the what's the kind of mid to long term vision? Yeah, I think the. I mean, from a commercial point of view, you know, we have a winning product in we're number one in breast pump category uh, and in train in pelvic floor. Though pelvic floor is much smaller. We obviously need to retain that position. We need to expand to new markets, um, which has been hard, you know, because of COVID. So, for example, we were trying to go into China and obviously China is still quite closed off. But it is about market expansion. And then I think the key thing we need to do is prove ourselves in a different category. So that's sort of what we're working on now. Um, but I also think from a business objectives point of view, like as you alluded to, this has been very hard with the investor market, particularly the consumer-facing tech businesses and uh extremely particularly if you're a loss-making consumer tech business. So, you know, loss-making consumer tech business have gone out of flavor this year. Um, and, and I think myself and other founders, what we've found is we've been pushed by investors to get to profitability faster. And actually, that's not a bad thing. So for us in the short term, actually, it's around um, we'll, we'll actually become profitable early next year. And that's actually very exciting. Like when you're a founder who's been sort of living off the adrenaline uh, of of VC money um, to get financial independence is quite exciting. And then being able to use that as a base for if and when we want to raise. And then in the midterm, yeah, there's no rush on the IPO side, but I do obviously investors want a liquidation event and 
And I like to prove something. So I do want to be one of the first, you know, multi-billion dollar exits for, for Femtech. Yeah. Well, that'd be amazing to kind of uh, seek out. And what would your advice be for entrepreneurs looking to raise capital um, and so on? I mean, obviously, you have some very high-profile backers like you know Lord Spencer, who sort of describes you as a true innovator. Um, what do you look for from investors? Yeah, I mean, advice very specifically at this moment in 2022 is if you can avoid raising right now, try to, to, to prolong your cash runway because it is – not a, a, a founder-friendly market right now, but hopefully that will change early 2022. Um, in general, I would always say, you know, it's like it's like any sales funnel, like start with a wide funnel. There'll always be dropouts, but it's not just, you know, ultimately you only ever need one investor. But the ideal situation you want to be in is, is have a choice. And that choice is, you know, two, two, two reasons. One, obviously you want to get the best terms. The second thing is ideally you need to choose, like really look at it as the individual, like ignore the name of the fund, like who is this person who's joining your board? Because they're going to be there for the long haul uh, and particularly check for things like cultural values. You know, are, are they going to be aligned with you? Uh, and so, for example, I would often, you know, if I didn't know VC partner who was maybe going to be putting forward a term, she'd be like, can we go for lunch and actually get to know them as a person? So really, my advice is look at the individual rather than the fund. And then on the term sheet side, um, you know, quite does surprise and worry me when quite a lot of founders are going negotiating term sheets and they do not understand all the legal clauses and they just leave it to their lawyers my main advice and it's really boring is just like get to understand every clause under the, the key clauses right everybody focuses on valuation but you've got to be looking at anti-dilution clauses which hopefully won't be in there but really important is your preference your liquidation preferences what are you giving away because i think founders quite often sign away stuff and they bring in all this money and then later down the line realize that they're in a really precarious situation or that or their chance of actually being able to take value out of a company is, is greatly reduced. And, you know, there's a lot, there's a list of, there's a whole history of founders who overraise and, you know, investors obviously walk away with their returns and, and founders don't. So I'm always for protecting founders' rights as much as possible and, and making sure we're all sort of clued up on that side as well. What sources are particularly useful to read about that type of thing? Yeah, I think key books. There's a book called Founder's Dilemma, um, yep. which I read very early on, uh, which talks to also the issue around co like everybody wants to go and there's co-founders. And again, that's great, but make sure you understand, you know, the pros and cons. And I think I read a very dry legal book saying, I have to check, it's called something like How to Outsmart Your VC Funder. Right, it's a legal one. It's called Venture Deals. Be smarter than your lawyer and venture capitalist. <laughs> exactly uh yeah a good book and the um the founder's dilemma um book as well is pretty um it's pretty good for thinking through a lot of those um so yeah it's, yeah, uh, it's often about what do you want like what's more important to you control or economic upside and just understanding the trade-offs right and just just always going and things eyes wide open <laughs> If somebody wants to understand more about the sector female technology and has been inspired by this conversation, what sources should they be looking at on a more regular basis? Are there newsletters that analyze it particularly well that you look at? LV.com? Uh, no, uh, yeah, there's a great newsletter called Fem, Fem Street. That's a really good yep. newsletter. So there's a few people out there who are sort of putting together newsletters and communities and things. So we're seeing yeah. more. But I think it's probably a bit of a gap, actually. There isn't like a sort of specific go-to for news on Femtech. 
Maybe mm. somebody listening could start something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, interesting. We'll definitely get in touch with us if you um, if you do. Um, and one of the things that we always like to try and do on the show is profile the next up and coming entrepreneurs. If you were to pass the mic to somebody, uh, somebody who hasn't had as much coverage yet, who would it be? It's Hannah Thompson from the Joy Club. She is phenomenal and she's doing incredible work. Uh, Hannah actually was was employee number six at LV. And you know when you've got somebody who's just so special, like she she's just she was on fire. She went in and sort of uh, recruited over a thousand health ambassadors for us. And she's always, you know, I knew when she left LV she would do her own thing. And I knew she would do it with passion but also purpose. So she set up the Joy Club, which is to end loneliness for people over 65. And it tends to be a very gendered issue because it tends to be women who are disproportionately divorced or widowed over the age of 65. And I think loneliness is such an epidemic in this country. So she set up the Joy Club to bring joy uh, to the older population through community education events. She's just amazing. I can't do it justice. Jimmy, you need to invite her on yeah, the show. Yeah, yeah, we'll get, we'll get her on and she can do it. No, I, I think it's really interesting. I mean, we profile founders a lot on the show, but also the high-profile people with interesting jobs. But something we haven't covered much yet is actually people that do join in the first 10 of a startup because actually they they don't have as much of the potential upside right in in a way it's just a bigger risk of starting a company um without the sort of you know like i say the potential upsides um and i think it's it's really interesting and it's something that we need to encourage more of in the in the uk right like you know lots of entrepreneurs are lionized and rightly so but but actually those people that go in and do the building as you were talking about not yeah and sorry maybe i wasn't there she's left lv and now started her own company but absolutely right. No, you're so right. We're lionized founders, like the pedestal that we're put on is kind of crazy. It's like this idea that we're running this company by ourselves. It's, I would love it. Absolutely. That, you know, if you, you know, the early team, our early team, Ben, John and, and Andrea, you know, they were, Ben and John have been there eight years. Andrea's there sort of five, six years. So they're, they are the founding team. They're the ones who sort of make it happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, make make the idea really come to um, to life and so on. Um, brilliant, Tanya. Thank you so much. That's been such a brilliant episode. Thanks for making the time to come on, and hopefully we can do it in person in the future, maybe as well. Thank you, Jimmy. That's great. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways we make this show possible is through our various partnerships. If you'd like to partner with us you would be joining one of the UK's fastest growing business podcasts, reaching over 40,000 listeners every month. We've helped a wide variety of groups tell their story, from the National Farmers Union right through to the FinTech Alliance. So if you'd like to work with us, just go to www.jobsofthefuture.co. To keep up to date with all Jobs of the Future news, you can follow us across all social media, including our brand new TikTok and YouTube channels.